Hello, film fans, and welcome to A Very Good Year, a new podcast where we invite a guest, a filmmaker or writer or actor or musician or really anyone who loves movies to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hall. And uh, our guest this week is a real thrill to have this guy. He's a, he's a film critic extraordinaire, uh, first came to prominence writing under the pen name of Moriarty for Ain't It Cool News. He's also a screenwriter. He's written episodes of Masters of Horror and Fear Itself, among others. Uh, he wrote and appeared in an episode of Netflix's Voir recently. And he writes two essential newsletters over at Substack, uh, Formerly Dangerous and The Last 80s Newsletter You'll Ever Need. This is Drew McWeeny. Hi, Drew. Hi, thank you very much for that intro. And uh, yeah, it's very good to be here. And uh, great topic. Um, very exciting. Yeah, well, I, you know, when we when we cooked up the idea for this thing, there were like, there were a handful of years that I knew were going to go immediately, like, you sure. know, and sure. 99 is, is uh, the idea that it's the, you know, one of the great movie years is not uh, a new one. There's a terrific book, a whole ass book about it by Brian Lafferty called uh, uh, Best Movie Year Ever. There's a terrific podcast where they're just going through the movies of 99 one by one called Podcast Like It's 99, which I've been a guest on, which is terrific as well. But I do want to know why this year in particular was was your pick. Why, given really the choice of, of any, since you were one of our first guests, why why you wanted to go with 99? Well, there are certainly other big, giant, iconic film years that I considered, and uh, there's a couple of years in the 70s where I think um, just film was uh, at a explosive uh, sort of birthing phase where suddenly it was mm -hmm. just everything was on the table and it was in, and everybody was doing interesting work. And, and considering the newsletters I write, I strongly considered coming on and doing 82, which I've talked about quite a bit. And when I started it, ain't cool. One of the things that I wanted to do there was kind of rehab the idea of 1982 as the great nerd year of of all time. Right. And I I commissioned pieces about that, and I really started beating that drum. And it was not a. Now it seems like it's a fairly accepted thing that that summer was extraordinary. It was not totally. accepted wisdom for a long time. And I, I, I definitely yeah. feel like there was some rehab work that was done to get us to the place where we consider it that now. Um, but that was something that I walked into Ain't It Cool knowing I wanted to do. While I was there, 1999 happened. Right. And living through it and being ground zero and watching all that happen and talking to those filmmakers and sort of seeing the fights to get those movies on screen the way they ended up on screen. Um, it's the most exciting year I ever covered. It is the most satisfying year I ever covered. Uh, when I am done with all of this, it is the year that I will be most, that I will feel most privileged to have witnessed up close like that. Um, it was extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and what I think is, is also really interesting is that, you know, a lot, when we're talking about some of those great years, when we're talking about, um, you know, 1939 or 1927 or even, you know, 82 or 74, like all of the sort of gathering of, of praise of this as a singular year happened much further down the line. There were not, you know, editorials being written in variety in like November of 1939. Like, Hey, can you believe what a for the books movie year we're having here? Yeah. But we were aware of this in 99 as it was happening. Like I have the, the clearest memory of that great entertainment weekly cover story that came out in like late November of 99. That was called, uh, 1999, the year that changed movies. Like they were already putting it into that kind of historical perspective. Yeah, it's that feeling like you're watching somebody run the bases and uh, right around November, they're they're rounding third and they're going to go. And it's like, holy shit, this is happening. And there was that feeling in 99 that it was a really special moment to be writing about films and watching movies and digesting movies. And I think it came at the end of a lot of really solid years where the 90s were an exciting era again, and the conversation about film got exciting again. So it felt like 99 was the culmination of all of that. What do you think 
was particularly special about the movies of the 90s that was sort of culminating there? What what was it that was sort of in the atmosphere cinematically and culturally that sort of seemed to be coming to a head? I think what you saw was the studio. It was the same thing that happened sort of at a certain moment in the 70s where the 70s were this moment of the studios giving up, realizing they didn't know what they were doing and <laughs> surrendering kind of to these crazy hippies with movie cameras and gambling that they might know what they were doing. And it paid off culturally. It suddenly changed the conversation about film and it changed what was commercial in film. And it, I think it really saved the industry. Um, so the 70s was that moment where audiences got very adventurous and we went and we rewarded the studios for taking chances on new voices and new styles of filmmaking. By the end of the 70s, they had figured out how to commodify that. Mm -hmm. The 90s is kind of the same thing. We had the indie explosion that happened all throughout the 90s that is the result of all these things going on in the 80s, but it really pays off. We get the the rise of the Miramaxes. We get the rise of the indie sort of culture where there is this whole other kind of cinema that you can tune into. You don't have, even have to go see studio movies anymore if you don't want to. It's so exciting. Right. And it feels like 99 is where the studios figured out how to commodify what had been happening in the indie world perfectly. And they were gambling on these indie voices and giving them budgets they'd never had and freedom they'd never had on a level they'd never had. And it paid off in phenomenal ways. Yeah. All right. Well, with that context uh, in mind for, for film, uh, Mike is going to give us a little bit of historical context for what was happening in the world outside the multiplex in 1999. So let's do headlines. January 1st, the euro becomes an active currency and the uh, European Central Bank becomes uh, a real functioning thing. So that's great or not, depending <laughs> on your perspective. Uh, February 4th, the NYPD shoots Amadou Diallo 19 times for no reason. And really, you know, it's kind of the, the George Floyd of the era in terms of the attention that that drew. Bill Clinton is being impeached for a blowjob uh, that year in the 90s equivalent of Al Capone getting popped for tax evasion. Uh, Bill Gates's Microsoft monopoly has made personal computers both extremely boring and also ubiquitous. And it's made him the richest man on earth, I think, for the first time. Um, in 99, uh, JFK Jr. flew his plane into the Atlantic Ocean as part one of his long con to run QAnon. Congrats. Uh, he's been on that for a long time. <laughs> Napster debuted uh, and so did the Sega Dreamcast, which might not be interesting to a lot of people, but it's very personally relevant. <laughs> I listened to a lot of stolen Napster music while playing Sega Dreamcast games. In 99 and 2000. So that, that really stood out to yeah. me. Uh, Alex Jones created InfoWars in 99. Wow. Which is really only remarkable because, like, I didn't realize he'd been pushing homophobic amphibians. He'd been, like, making money off of that for so long. But, yeah, yeah InfoWars came out in 99. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> computers and Y2K, you know, was everywhere, right? But cell phones were not yet. So there was sort of the... Religious idea that, you know, the world's going to come to the end, but nobody took that very seriously. But then there was the secular idea that all the computers were just going to stop working and all the planes were going to fall out of the sky. And and people took that very, very seriously, seriously. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and ended up doing something about the things that were real and sort of letting the rest of it pass into history. So the 90s were a very skeptical age, you know, along with the sort of, you know, indie movies, there was also grunge and, and you know, a lot of independent music that people were hearing for the first time. Like the gangster rap just kept getting harder and harder and harder. The WTO protests were happening in Seattle, sort of the first like wave of the Bernie bros. Um, you know, it was there was a lot of anti-government and anti-corporate sentiment through the entire decade. And uh, by 99, you know, as as Drew mentioned about the sort of commodification of 82 and, and of the whole 70s and, and that thing, by 99, they had figured out how to sort of package all of this anti-corporate sentiment into products that would make them billions and billions of dollars. There you go. Um, my favorite example, of course, is Rage Against the Machines Battle of Los Angeles, which came out on Epic Records, a subsidiary of Sony, made them billions of dollars. I bought it. I fucking played it every day. Uh, the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. The New York Yankees won the World Series. Tiger Woods and Serena Williams made history in their respective sports. And there was a World Cup in 1999. Yes. And it was won by the United States 
women. There we go. <laughs> That's headlines. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. You and now we're going to turn it over to Drew. Are you ready, Drew, to, to in this extraordinary of cinematic years, to, uh, to run us down your top five favorite movies of 1999? Yes. Yes, I am. High five for death Let's do it. What is uh, number five on your alphabetical, not ranked list? Uh, so, uh, being John Malkovich. Malkovich! Malkovich. 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 I just recently revisited this one for the first time with my sons, who uh, they're just now getting to the age where they're old enough for sort of the class of 99, those Mm -hmm. movies and sort of what those movies represent. And being John Malkovich is... I think just as piercing now as it was then, maybe even more haunting. Um, I think at the time I was taken with the sort of bratty voice of Charlie Kaufman, which is the surface of being John mm-hmm. Malkovich. But now that we have the filmography of Spike Jones, which apparently is finished unless he ever decides to make another movie. <laughs> um, but now that we have that filmography that we can look at, I, you can clearly see how it fits into his sort of voice and, and the loneliness of being John Malkovich is so um, haunting. I forgot the ending of that movie. I forgot how, because the movie is so wild and the movie has so much fun with the premise of it and it gets so crazy with some of the invention of it. But at heart, it's this really sad love story where a guy brings two people together and realizes he has no place in the triangle and his karmic payoff at the end of that Uh movie, being trapped in that body, watching this life unfold, um, horrifying and so sad and so haunting. And like for a movie that is as ridiculous in its premise and asks as much of a buy-in as this one does, um, it really pays off on a very human, very personal level. And I, f- I find that that's one of the things about these 90s films that I, I really love is that tightrope that somebody can walk where it shouldn't work. There's no reason that right. movie should work at all. And when you hear about it, you're like, well, that can't work. That can't be good. That can't be something that's going to break my heart over and over and over as I get older. But it yeah. does. And yeah, yeah, I I really I think the performances in it Cusack is terrific. Diaz might never have been better. Yeah. Um and I think there are a lot of directors that never give her room to play unglamorous or to play against a sort of type that she got put in early. And that performance from her is fierce and scary and calculating and great and really um, hungry. There's a hunger to that performance. And Keener's Keener. She can do Of course. Uh, St. Keener is awesome in it as always. So um, yeah, yeah, great, great movie, great production design. It's visually so inventive. Um, John Malkovich deserves bonus points forever for not only letting them do it, but for leaning in the way he did. Right. Yeah. I, that, and I remember at the time there even being interviews where it was, I feel like Kaufman had said, like, it was only ever John Malkovich in his head. There were yeah. studio people who said, well, if we can't get him, can you rewrite it to someone else? And he was like, I really can't. There's a very specific John Malkovich thing that this has to have. He's not the most famous person in the world. Right. He's not an actor who everybody admires and loves. He is a odd choice and the word itself malkovich the scene yes. where they go where malkovich goes into his own brain and everything becomes yes. malkovich is 
not just great because that scene is so so next level uh, weird visually, but that word becomes such an unusual sound over the course of that scene. Yes. <laughs> now, I remember seeing this actually on a trip to California because I was still living in Kansas at the time. So I got to see it much sooner than anyone else did in Kansas. Uh, it took us a while to get some of these 99 independent films. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, I went in, you know, the ads were very much, you know, it's this clever, funny little premise. And they push that. And obviously that's what you sell is this sort of surrealist idea. Um And I wasn't sure how I felt about it afterwards just because it punched me in the gut so hard. Um, And it took seeing it again once it finally made its way back to Kansas, you know, three months later or whatever, uh, to fully appreciate how, like you said, how wrenching it is, how, uh, how heartbreaking it is. Yeah. It's easy to forget that stuff, I think, because you've sort of seen like heartbreaking and wrenching movies before. Yes. But you've never seen that scene, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. That's like, and the sort of inventiveness (laughs) and and creativeness of that stuff is so off the charts that I I agree. It's sort of like the things that you've seen in movies before, you sort of drop out of your mind about it. And then when you go back to it, you're like, those things pop up in movies over and over because they're really effective. Right. right? Because we want to, and they do them so well. That I sort of only remember that on rewatch. My wife, on the other hand, can tell you every word of that. Movie, so <laughs> she was she was fun to watch it with. She was just walking around the house all day going Malkovich, Malkovich, and I told her we were going to watch it. That's so great. All right. Excellent number five. Uh, Drew, what is your next selection in your top five of 99? Okay. So this film has always been controversial. I remember I was standing on the set of another 1999 film, The Green Mile, and there were some crew members that had just come over from a production that was troubled, that was taking a break where they were going to have to maybe re-crew up because uh, it was in so much trouble. And they were talking about the movie and they were like, "It, I I read this. I don't get the script. It's the biggest. I, he's, that guy's fucking insane. That guy's terrible. I, <laughs> that's never coming out. And they were talking about Fight Club. I want you to hit me. As hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Okay. Ow! You hit me in the ear! Um, wow. And they were talking about Fincher. They thought he was out of his mind. They truly did not understand what that film was supposed to be. Um, they were not alone. And all yeah. during production, he fought with Bill Mechanic. He fought with higher-ups at the studio. Um, I remember seeing it at a... <laughs> And believe me, when I heard that conversation, I had read the script by Jim Yules and thought it was terrific, thought it was a great adaptation of the book, and thought it was a really... I, but I knew right away, this is a movie that people are going to watch the first half of and then not hear the rest of, and they're going to have a very specific relationship with half of this film, and yeah. that's going to suck. But, oh well, um, <laughs> I can't control that. I, the back yeah. half of the movie exists, and it's there, yeah. and it refutes the first half. But I understand. I know how these things work. There are certain movies that the public <laughs> watches part of and goes, great, that's all I need of it. I, I That's all that exists, <laughs> that half. Um, so that... That movie has always had a, from the moment it came out, um, difficult to get your arms around vibe. I think it is extraordinary. I think it is, along with A Clockwork Orange, one of the best films about the way young men internalize the bullshit that gets thrown at them in awful, toxic, deranged ways. And the way groups of young men are rarely a good thing. I think it's exceptional. And I think uh, on top of it, it's unbelievably funny yes it is truly not given it to do as a comedy it is a dark 
comedy. No, I mean, when it came out, the Clockwork Orange comparison was made, but it's also like kind of his Doctor Strange love also, like in yes. terms of, 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 of the, the bite of the satire in that thing. Um, and I think I think both performances, I think Edward Norton is terrific in it. I think it might be my favorite Norton performance. Um, it uses all of that weird twitchy energy of his in the best possible way as a guy who yeah. is literally hiding from himself and sleepwalking through life. And if we are going to accept the premise of the film that we have this other half that we create that is our manifestation of all the things we want to be, well, Brad Pitt looking mm-hmm. like that could not be better cast. It's ridiculous. And is at his funniest. I think he 100% got what he was playing and, and understood the joke of Tyler Durden. Um, but yeah, it's a wild ride still. It is blisteringly dark. I think, uh, meatloaf is terrific in it. I think the whole supporting cast is terrific. Helena bottom Carter is great in it. And again, this is a movie that I've shown my sons, but only when they reach a certain birthday, when they reach their 14th (laughs) birthday, it's part of their young men getting programmed movies. It's right there with full metal jacket. And these are movies that I think you got to show them and say, all right, so look, the world's going to try and do this to you. Please, please be aware that everybody wants to put their fingers in your head. Um, And I, and I think the movie is one of the best versions of that. I think the thing you said earlier, the comparison between, you know, studios throwing up their hands and saying, I don't know, you you figure it out to 90s filmmakers in a similar way they did in the 70s. Maybe the single best manifestation of that is the fact that a major studio owned at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, by Rupert Murdoch Indeed. released this movie with that ending. Like the closing frames of that movie went out on a major studio release uh, of a studio owned by Murdoch. The the first press screening for that, and I remember when that happened, Yeah, there was a sound in the theater where clearly <laughs> two-thirds of the theater did not expect that they would let it happen and yeah. were un prepared for it uh it you could hear like the air leave their bodies uh which fantastic man and truly it still feels dangerous yes yes absolutely all right uh movie number three on drew mcweeney's top five of 1999 uh i think you would have a hard time finding a film more 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 uh diametrically different to fight club than this one but but uh an excellent choice as well um, yeah, it, the first of my uh, animated titles on the list, uh, I am picking Brad Bird's masterpiece, Iron Giant. Two nights ago, a SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Invaders from Mars. Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. <laughs> This is something much more dangerous. I still think it is the best thing Brad's made. And I think it is such a pure expression of love of animation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I met Brad for the first time in the early 90s when he was still working on Family Dog, the television show. And I love that. I love Family Dog so much. And had made the jump to The Simpsons. Yeah. And so he and the reason The Simpsons hired him originally is what they called his credit was visual consultant was because Brad from his early days at Disney through his TV work, Brad's thing was that animation has to be better than what you're doing. And Mm. he would say that to anybody. And basically in American animation, his attitude was, it has to be better than this. We've given up. We've given up our primary spot in doing this as an art form and we don't respect it and we have to. And so Mm. Brad was constantly beating this drum for what animation should be. And he was one of several guys that came out of that Disney era um, that were like that. Don Bluth, certainly. Um, a lot of the guys that left with Don Bluth, Tim Burton. But they they all had this belief that animation should be better than it was. And when mm-hmm. Warner Brothers gave him a chance to make his first feature film, um, that script was a great script, but it came to life as storyboards. And it came to life once they started, and he hired his animators, and once they really got it up on its feet and animated, and it became this love letter to hand-drawn animation with some CG elements incorporated as a way of just making something perfect. 
but it was still hand drawn and hand built and and gorgeous and it, it's it escaped Warner Brothers tried to kill it several <laughs> times it escaped them um it's a miracle it was why do you think why do you think that was why what do you think what were they afraid of with that movie do you think uh, well, they were killing the animation because when they started their mm. animation, Warner Brothers feature animation, they Quest for Camelot was the first film. This was the second film. They were going to make three more films and Quest for Camelot tanked. So that was right. they made the decision then that they were going to tank the division. They already had this in the pipeline and were so far along that they couldn't quite kill it. And when right. I wrote about Iron Giant in January of 99 and it was still like on a videotape and it was still pencil test for a good third of it. They were talking about home video release in pan and scan. They were going to wow. murder that movie. Um, and it's really, they had to be shamed into just letting them release the scope theatrical film and finish it the right way. And the thing that they got, and it's funny, I watched the other day, I watched Warner brothers tweet something about the iron giant was released on this day in 1999 now it's a beloved generational classic that you tried to kill in its crib don't act <laughs> like you didn't hate this movie like yes it drives me crazy but yes they they really didn't know what they had and i i think he put together a team of people that just wanted to make something great that was american and that was not tied to anything else and that wasn't for children directly, but they could be watched by anybody. And the movie that they made with the very simple message, I am not a gun is so profound and so beautiful. And at the same time, just a love letter to animation. Um, yeah. A winner top to bottom. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. This is i uh, I'm sure the one that a fair number of listeners are waiting for drew. What is your number four of your top five of 99? The Matrix changed everything. You can't talk about 1999 and not talk about The Matrix and its influence on mainstream cinema. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. It was the movie that finally brought this obsessive love of uh, Hong Kong culture and Japanese culture and anime and science fiction from overseas, all of it into American mainstream language. And it did it all at once. And it really right. felt like these guys were speaking the secret language that we'd all been speaking behind the scenes for most of the 90s. And then they made the movie that finally got it right that everybody had been trying to make. There were like eight other movies that wanted to be this film, uh, including Some of them one even starring Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he clearly believed that this was, that there was supposed right. to be a movie like this. Um, right. And yeah, it's just the perfect version of what they were trying to do. And it's like Robocop. It is a perfect comic book movie, not based on a comic book. It gets the right. language comic books just right. Like it gets everything I love about that kind of world building and that kind of mythology. And it drops you into the middle of a story and it just assumes you'll pick it up. It, it's really kind of effortless. And like Star Wars, there's a reason that none of the rest of it has ever quite felt like magic again. And it's because you can only do that once. There's only one time you get to sneak up on everybody and, and blow happens, their hair back. Yeah. Yeah. It's generational. That's what it's, it's amazing when you're there and you get to witness it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that 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 idea of all of these ingredients coming together in that stew is what makes that movie special. And in a, in a, in a strange, I remember, first of all, I remember seeing it opening weekend um, with some expectation because I had seen Bound um, <laughs> on home video, but I, you know, I was like, okay, these people know how to put a motion picture together. Um, but still like in no way prepared for the sort of leap in scope and canvas and ambition that was on display there. But I also remember walking out of it feeling a lot of the way I felt uh, coming out of Pulp Fiction 
in terms of the fact that it was what it was. It was a unique thing because of the mixture of all of these other things Yeah, that you're right, that it's like, you know, my favorite thing in it is like a John Woo style shootout sequence, but it's like, it's not a whole movie of John Woo style shootout sequences. It's got all of these video game references. It's got all of these anime influences. It's got all of this, you know, dy dystopic sci-fi stuff in it. But the fact that it never feels like a hodgepodge, it never feels like a, a patchwork quilt, but that it's all weaved together so beautifully. Yeah, it's. I I I feel like for a lot of people, it's a gateway drug into a Absolutely. whole world of science fiction. That, um, like, I grew up reading Philip K. Dick, and I grew up uh, reading uh, like uh, Mebius comics and like the Black Inkle comics, and so there's stuff that I recognize as influential here. But I don't fault anybody who comes to it from the Matrix into everything, because that's the point. You make a movie like that, you're hoping that you're going to be the gateway drug that's going to suddenly turn everybody on to all this shit that you grew up with. All loving. the cool shit you like, yes. Yeah. Um, and I do think the Wachowskis are the best big sisters you could ever ask for, kind of <laughs> introducing you to their favorite albums and books and comics. And that's kind of the role that they have in pop culture, thanks to the stuff that they've made. You can look at it and you can just pick all their influences. And that's part of the fun of them. And yeah, I really I think this is the perfect crystallization of their voice. You mentioned bound, uh, you mentioned bound and, but it seemed like I recall at the time, like working with them even then was seemed sort of not necessarily like risky, but this, like what, what was sort of the process of them having the opportunity to make that thing? Because it was, like you said, it was a dramatic sort of leap in scope. I think it was the fact that it was cheap. It was not an expensive movie. And Joel Silver really? knew that it, it's it's cheap the way Raiders of the Lost Ark is cheap. We look at mm. Raiders of the Lost Ark and it's just a, an unassailable classic. It was a movie that they had to make for a price because, not, you know, 1941 and Close Encounters did not perform the way they were supposed to. So Spielberg was eating a little shit when he went to make this movie. And I think the Wachowskis were in a position where Warner Brothers knew that they wanted to get into the sci-fi business because Star Wars was coming out and everybody kind of wanted to have a sci-fi movie. They didn't really know if this thing was going to work or not, so they put a number on it, and they said, as long as you make it for this, go make your crazy little movie. And I think they got away with it because they mm. knew they could do it for a price. Um, if it had been an expensive movie, there's no way they would have made it, and they, everybody would have been looking at them and paying attention and micromanaging, and instead, they did it the right way, which is Joel Silver loved their screenplays, believed that they were going to be the guys and just went to bat for them. And that that one person was all they really needed to, to get it up and running and made their way. Yeah. It, it helps when it's someone who can throw their weight around the way that Joel Silver could in the early 1990s. Um, okay. And finally, your, the final film of Drew McWeeny's Top 5 of 99. Yeah. This one, um, this one was a movie that was a turnkey movie for me where mm. I had... Um, I had certainly uh, seen my share of anime in the 80s and into the early 90s, and I went and saw a lot of it theatrically. And like I loved Akira, and I certainly had a respect for what was coming out, but I also thought there was a lot of just shit. And I thought a lot of it was shock for shock's sake, you know, Legend of the Underfiend and uh, stuff that I, uh, Nightmare City and uh, or Wicked City and things that I went and saw, uh, Fist of the North Star. I really got to the point where I just gave up on anime. I was like, yeah, I, I get it. It's all super extreme and it's and it's not for me. I don't really like any of it. And so I did not pay attention at all for the 90s uh, to the works <laughs> of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. And then I got a chance to do an interview with him and I had to do it for the American release of Princess Mononoke. And so USC was showing or UCLA was showing all of his films. And I had a chance to go see everything in a week and a half and then see Mononoke oh, wow. and then go talk to him. So I went from, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of out on anime to walking into that room <laughs> shaking because holy <laughs> shit, who are you, dude? And this yeah. movie punched me in the face. 
The legends say the blood of the great forest spirit can heal anything. Without that ancient god, this desolate place will be the richest land in the world. You would do that? Kill the very heart of the forest? Um, all of his work is amazing. This movie is a theatrical experience that if you have never seen it on a big screen, you have to because it is truly one of those once-in-a-lifetime artistic accomplishments like Sleeping Beauty was for Walt Disney and those artists. It is everything he learned how to do done by hand in a way that makes your jaw hit the floor about four minutes in and stay there for two hours. Um, staggering work of art, staggering character work, staggering visual work. Um, I think it is one of the most beautiful movies he's ever made in terms of expressing all of his themes about humanity and nature and our relationship to it and how there are no real bad guys. It is about perspective. He is a fascinating filmmaker, and this is truly one of his masterworks. Now, you mentioned, too, that this this 99 release, this was the American dub with the American cast that Neil Gaiman had done the adaptation for. Is that yes. right? Yes. And in fact, they, I interviewed Neil first, and then I interviewed Miyazaki and talked to them both about that process of making sure, because of how dissatisfied he was from earlier experiences and how this was for right. him. A, a way of reasserting an entry into America. He saw this as his reintroduction. As we mm -hmm. tried this once before, you guys fucked it up. I, I made <laughs> the movies. You guys just insisted on cutting them and putting weird voices on them and ruining them. So we're not going to do that anymore. Let's try that again. And it really felt like his reintroduction to America. And I think Gaiman was incredibly privileged to, and seemed like what an unbelievable honor to get to translate this. Um, but yeah, he uh, it, it was amazing to me to get that crash course and to realize that there was this filmmaker that I had been neglecting who was turning out just masterpiece after masterpiece for over a decade. I'm curious, your have you since then, have you seen, like, you know, we are, we're always trying to recommend things that, you know, people might not have seen that they're hearing about for the first time on here, especially younger listeners. If you're recommending this movie to someone who doesn't know his work, do you tell them to seek out that 99 American dub version or send them back to the original 97 Japanese release subtitled? I think I think now what's amazing is because HBO Max has the deal with Studio Ghibli, the versions that are mm -hmm. there on HBO Max are the versions he wants. And he mm. and he has several times uh, changed companies because mm -hmm. he's very demanding about how he wants subtitles presented, how he wants everything presented. So the versions on HBO Max, that's the versions you should seek out. The dubs that are there are the ones he likes. The subtitles are the the versions he it's everything that has gone through his filter to make sure that it's the best possible presentation and it took a long time to get there with those movies beautiful all right well drew that is uh that is a lovely top five of 99 Thank uh, you. we'll run it back down for everyone uh just uh just to reiterate being john malkovich fight club the iron giant the matrix and princess mononoke a lovely cross-section of some of the good stuff that was available that year. Now we're going to take a look at some of the other things that people were going to see and talking about and giving awards to uh, coming out of the year 1999. Uh, and Drew, feel free to jump in and and sure. uh, you know throw throw in your two cents on these as they pop up, good or bad. Uh, Mike, walk us through, if you will, some uh, some award winners and box office champions. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out. With the Oscar, we got the American Beauty for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. Aged great. Good decisions. <laughs> yeah, that's held up well, right? Aged great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How did you feel about this movie at the time, Drew? And has, has, has your opinion on it changed? Because I'll admit that mine has. And that I liked it quite a bit at the time. It is a stylish film. Sam Mendes absolutely knew what he was doing. And it's a stylish movie. It's a good performance by Kevin Spacey. He's playing exactly what he is asked to play in that movie. What he's asked to play in that movie is a unrelenting scumbag. That guy's real hot trash. So it's... Um, and it's not a movie that I have a moral problem with. 
I just think it is sort of a magic trick of a movie. I think you see it one time and it works yep. one way. I think the yep. more you look at it, the emptier it feels. And there's plenty of movies like that where I feel like you're only meant to see them one time and you really, and just, there you go, go home. And if they could have never put it on video, it would have been great for them because you would have had it in your head a certain way. What else won Oscars that year, Mike? Uh, Hilary Swank won Best Actress for Boys Don't Cry. Uh, Michael Caine won Best Supporting Actor for Cider House Rules. And uh, John Irving won Best Adapted Screenplay. Girl Interrupted. That I think, I was just going to say, that uh, those two wins might be, for me, the most egregiously off-putting of that year's Oscar. I, at the time, I didn't understand what the attraction was to Cider House Rules, except that, you know, the Weinsteins were good Oscar campaigners. It, that's that's what it was. This is the era of, of them basically controlling the conversation. <laughs> I uh, I'm a huge John Irving fan. Like I, uh, uh, Prayer for Owen Meany is my favorite novel. Period. Like there's mm. not even mm. it's not even close. That's my favorite novel. Uh, and World According to Garp is in my top ten as well. I think um, a great author. Cider House Rules isn't my favorite of his books. It's it's his Dickens riff, and it's okay. And that movie I think is kind of a a stiff. I don't get that. If they were going to yeah. campaign for something that year, they should have gone all in on the talented Mr. Ripley because I'd still be backing that play. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Was it a was it a Lifetime Achievement Award for Kane? No, because he had won Supporting Actor like what, like 13 years earlier for, well, then, for Hannah and her sisters. No, yeah. and when you look at who he beat for that award, it's really extremely frustrating. Go right ahead, Mike. Uh, Girl Interrupted. Uh, Angelina Jolie won for Supporting Actress. And All About My Mother won basically all the foreign film statues at all the fancy dinners. That Deservedly. Year. Deservedly. Uh, some other big winners. Toy Story 2 won uh, Comedy Musical Best Picture Golden Globe. Denzel Washington uh, got Best Actor for The Hurricane. Uh, these are all Globes. Jason, I, I see what you're doing here, where you're sort of adding things that aren't Oscars because you really are just building toward the last one in your list. <laughs> Jim Carrey won the uh, Golden Globe for Best Actor for Man in the Moon, uh, a movie which I saw a couple weeks ago and really enjoyed I did not go into it. I, I liked it last time, but I didn't expect to read. I did. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm a big fan of pretty much all the Kar the uh, Karaszewski Alexander biopics. Uh, I, I think yes. every director they've worked with has, has done pretty well by their scripts. I think they are yes. a, a difficult to screw up brand at this point. <laughs> I agree. I still think it's a, a little odd that he won that that movie's listed as a comedy, but also like what else are you going to yeah. call? It? You know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Tom Cruise won the Golden Globe for supporting actor for Magnolia, which uh, uh, should have been how the Oscars went. But I digress. Janet McTeer won Best Actress in a Comedy for Tumbleweeds, and uh, <laughs> and this is pure Bailey right here. Election won the WGA Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, Independent Spirit Awards for Best Feature, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. And you will likely never hear another Independent Spirit Award on this podcast again, but Bailey's going to throw it in there to shout out Election, Election every is time. Election a great, a great movie, a, a great <laughs> piece of American filmmaking. Drew, uh, what, where, where, do you, where do you sit on Election? A uh, huge fan. Um, the, the biggest problem with your format is that I could only pick five movies, and this year was a murderer's <laughs> row of great movies. Um, Election easily could have been in my top five. Magnolia easily yeah. could have been in my top five. Um, I think Election has a flawless Reese Witherspoon performance. Um, yes. That is one of the great screen villains sort of uh, and I, I i i love tracy flick i am fascinated by her i am also equally terrified of her so um, yeah she's something <laughs> don't take don't take my uh don't take my tone for skepticism about the movie it's just like you are the biggest election fan that i have ever met and have been from the first five minutes yes. of the first time you saw yes. it as i recall correct yeah correct yes uh the domestic box office top 10 that year. Number one, no surprise to anyone then or now. Star Wars episode crap. The Phantom crap. $431 million. Hold on. Uh, Hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, 
Drew, any thoughts on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the number one movie ma- moneymaker of the year? I, I mean, I, I I had a difficult relationship with it at that point. It's uh, <laughs> there was a, it's funny because going into '99, there was a point where I I turned to my friend and I was like, "Do you realize that right now, somewhere on the planet, George Lucas, Stanley Kubrick, and Terrence Malick are allegedly yeah. making movies?" He was like, yeah, 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 yeah. we'll never see any of them, but okay. And uh, (laughs) it was kind of an amazing moment that these guys were all coming out of the cave that they had been living in. Um, And I think George Lucas, the best way to describe Phantom Menace is that man was rusty. Mm. Rusty. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had rust in the pipes. (laughs) You know who wasn't? I'm glad Kubrick's name came up because that's somebody who wasn't rusty. (laughs) Love that movie. He passed away in ninety nine, and uh, and I yeah. was gonna put that in the headlines, but I wasn't sure I'd be able to make it through without yeah. crying. So, uh, thank you for for bringing yeah. that up. I love 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 his last movie, um, and I think it is again one of those movies that is funnier than its reputation. Oh, absolutely! Um, I find Eyes Wide Shut genuinely funny and intentionally funny. Um, yeah, and Find I me a the- comedy with a better button than that movie has. Find me a comedy with a funnier last dialogue exchange it's, than Eyes Wide Shut. It's a great last line of dialogue. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and I think the one-two punch of that in Magnolia that might be one of my favorite years for Cruz. I think he was absolutely just on fire that year. On fire and taking risks, which yeah. is like at that point in your career to take those kind of risks is admirable. Like good for him for for turning his his career at that white fire moment over to Stanley Kubrick for like what, two plus years to make whatever <laughs> fucking weird movie you want. Yeah, to make. I, and that was truly, that was one of the moments where I realized how useless the internet was going to be for news because, uh, <laughs> eyes wide shut. Oh, hundred percent useless. Um, and quote yeah. me on that, please. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, cause eyes wide shut every story that we heard about the making of eyes wide shut before it came out was nonsense. And yes, you didn't know it was nonsense until you saw the movie. And you go, well, wait, there's no scenes that correspond to anything anybody <laughs> described as having happened yeah. during the product. That's not what this movie is. That's never what this movie was. Oh, people just made shit up. Oh, that's what the internet <laughs> is. Got it. So educational <laughs> behind the scenes, too. <laughs> All right, Mike, if you want to finish out that top 10 for us, if you would, sir. Power through that top 10. Uh, the number two is the Sixth Sense with two hundred ninety three million. That was not a that was not a film that was predicted to make that kind of coin, Drew. If I remember correctly, it was not. But I gotta I gotta say I read that script and I still I still think it's one of the best on the page screenplays I've ever read because everything mm. about it is economical. There's like not an ounce of fat on his descriptions or his dialogue. And reading it the first time through, you got to the end and you just went, wait, what? And you went back to the beginning. You went, oh shit! You would read it the second time and go, oh this son of a bitch! Oh man! And you would just get mad as a writer. And I remember right before it came out, I was like, if he can direct, like he can write, he's gonna right. own the planet. Um, yeah. And it really, it was a great, it was great to watch that kind of land on people and to have yeah. and to have everybody go, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got, I got to see that again. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. great moment. All right, Mike, keep it going. Sorry for the for number. No, no, that's that was a, that was a major, major movie mm-hmm. in '99. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a major thing, and I realize that you know it's been talked about since, but it would be sort of weird to leave it yeah. out, you know. Yeah. Uh, number three, Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, got two hundred six million dollars. Still can't say shagged me without laughing. Uh, Toy Story two with one hundred ninety nine million dollars in fourth place. The uh, the Matrix with one hundred seventy one million dollars. So I guess they made their budget back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> number six was Tarzan with one hundred and seventy million. Seems odd nope, to me. Now. Don't never underestimate uh, the Mouse House, buddy. Number seven was Big Daddy, uh, one hundred sixty three million dollars, and I think arguably a, a real hinge point <laughs> in a career. Uh, anyway, uh, number eight was The Mummy with one hundred fifty five million dollars. Um, inexplicably loved still. Number nine was Runaway Bride with $152 million. And number 10 was the biggest story for filmmakers of the year, right? 
the Blair yep. Witch Project with $140 million, which it might still be on prospective indie film budgets that they're trying to sell yeah. to this day. Because yeah. that movie costs like 20 bucks and, you know, a tent on a credit yep. card. Yeah. And uh, made it to the top 10. Yeah. Let's hold the lightning round because I don't want to have to bury Blair Witch in the lightning round. Drew, for, for younger listeners or for people who weren't paying attention, like, try to explain the sort of the seismic shock of that movie hitting that year. It was, I, I I was very lucky to see it in a way where it got dropped on me before I'd heard of it, before it played Sundance. Mm. And it was okay. a videotape that somebody just had and said, hey, yeah. I know you're getting ready to leave Austin and you're going to drive across country and it's the middle of the night, but before you go, look <laughs> at this videotape that somebody just sent that I think there it's a documentary or something. And wow. we put it in with no preamble. We get to the end. Mike's in the corner. It goes black. And our friend goes, great. See ya. <laughs> and it's 3.30. And we then have to drive into the black oh. of Texas and drive all night. I've never been so scared or messed up from a movie. And I knew, like, I knew it was fake. I, of course, because... I assume you weren't just sent evidence of a crime. Right. Um, I assume this is a movie. And later right. in the week, he told us, yeah, this is going to play Sundance next week. And that's what it is and blah, blah, blah. But for about 24 hours, we just had the experience of we saw this document of these poor kids who died. And then we were supposed to go on with our day. And on a larger scale that's like an apocryphal story like i just went out to cafe wa for a cup of fucking espresso and Jimi hendrix played acoustic for two <laughs> hours and i'd never heard of him that's like an amazing that's like the perfect blair witch but story it happened then culturally to everyone like the right them using the internet to seed the story and pretend that it was right. real and then people not really the mainstream not really understanding what it was when they started buying tickets to it and the buzz that it will scare you, but we're not going to tell you anything else. Um, it right. was a perfect storm. And it was one of those moments where you kind of feel like, oh, this is what it, William Castle was always trying to do. This is that perfect version of, yeah. we just, we set the table. It, it reminds me of when you go to uh, Disneyland and you go to the Haunted Mansion. And what's great about the Haunted Mansion starts 35 minutes before you ever get inside the ride. It's all the shit <laughs> while you're standing in line and the gravestones with the jokes and the everything up. Right. Blair Witch took advantage of the internet to do that and to set that line so that before you ever got in the theater, you were like, wait, are those kids really dead? Are they real? Are they alive? Are they and you're having the argument with your friends and then you go see the movie. And, right. Man, it was, it was a one-of-a-kind lightning-in-a-bottle moment. And then we saw four million awful found footage movies. Because of it. <laughs> it was also like this sort of interesting time that we didn't realize it then. But now when you think about it, like all those actors would have, you know, long Instagram pages of begging people to mm -hmm. come watch their improv show or whatever. Right. You'd have deep, deep Facebook wells yes. and shit like that. Now that when you're standing in line at that theater, you might be like, that's full of shit. Here's a picture of this girl, you know, drunk at a party in college or whatever. And at that time, like you genuinely, like they didn't do as far as I recall, they didn't do like conventional press, press now, you know, yeah. right. It's not like they were sort of <laughs> on the local news or, you know, doing radio interviews or something. It really was kind of, like we'd never heard of yep. any of the actors we'd never heard of the filmmakers and so maybe they are dead i don't know about a you year know? after the film came out i was at um uh delhi on uh, uh wilshire boulevard with some friends and we were sitting in a booth and the friend that we were with is this real hippy dippy goofy uh sort of uh artist friend of ours and he's talking to us and looking over our shoulders and all of a sudden he gets real like spooked and his face goes white and he stands up with tears in his eyes and goes, hold on. And he walked across the restaurant to hug Heather Donahue and tell her that he was glad she was alive. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, wow, cool, man. <laughs> That's a powerful yeah, movie yeah, for is. a sandwich yeah. in a tent. <laughs> All right. Thank you for uh, for taking us back to, to those heady days of the Blair Witch Project. Uh, Drew, you up for a lightning round? Sure. 
Mike has put 10 minutes on the clock. Let's see how many of these other great uh, and maybe not so great movies of 99 we can make it through. Here we go. Office Space. Uh, I really love Office Space. I think it is Mike Judge doing a very nice job of making his voice fit into the film live action format, something that he has not really been able to duplicate since. Um, But I think this is a really nice expression of what Mike does well. Ravenous. I love Ravenous. I love Ravenous. It's creepy and it's crazy (laughs) and it's really nasty. And if you've never seen it, I don't want to ruin anything. Um, I just want to say, I think he was licking me. (laughs) Doug Lyman's Go. Great little little youth movie. Great energy in this movie. Great cast. Great ensemble. Um, I don't think it totally adds up to much, but I kind of think that's the point. It's just this movie about one ramshackle night told from a whole bunch of perspectives with a great cast in it the aforementioned the mummy uh, eh, eh, you know it's uh, <laughs> i i like raiders of the lost ark too <laughs> buena vista social club uh, uh this is this is one of those movies you can take a bath in um you put it on because yeah. it's a specific vibe and it's a specific sound and it's really lovely um if you like a certain kind of music John Sayles is limbo. I I loved watching this in the theater. The ending of this movie, uh, when it happens, uh, I won't say what happens because I think everybody should have the experience of seeing limbo as fresh as you can. I will simply say that I feel for the man who stood up and yelled at the screen, that's some bullshit, and then stormed out. Suffice it to say that limbo has an ending that makes the ending of No Country for Old Men feel positively conclusive. (laughs) (laughs) That was probably me. From Germany, Run Lola Run. Great. Audacious, fun, uh, just energy to spare. Tom Tickver, uh, I love the uh, look and feel of this film, and and Franca Potent is terrific as the lead. My favorite thing, you know, I love the old Howard uh, Hawks quote about a great movie is three great scenes and no bad scenes. And I love that Run Lola Run is set up to where it's only three great scenes. Yes. Um, South Park, (laughs) bigger, longer and uncut. My favorite press screening of all time. Uh, Before this movie (laughs) began, every critic in that theater was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Why? Why are they making a movie out of South Park? That's so stupid. The show's basically done anyway. Nobody's watching it anymore. Blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And then right about the time Uncle Fucka ends and they're applauding and on their feet. I'm like, wow, (laughs) wow. I've never seen a room swing more wildly or suddenly or be won over more wholeheartedly uh, and uh, deservedly. That's a great, great movie musical. David O. Russell's Three Kings. Um, I, I really like three. I know we don't like David O. Russell. I understand. I know. Uh, and I, I understand even the set of this one. Crazy problematic. Uh, there's <laughs> there's nothing really defensible about the way the man behaves. Uh, having said that, Three Kings fucking rules. And uh, I love every performance in it. I think Spike Jones is great in this movie. I think yes. Ice Cube is great in this movie. Fantastic. And this is one of the movies, along with Out of Sight, that convinced me, oh, yeah, George Clooney is a movie star. Yes. I will only add that the Three Kings DVD has maybe my all-time special, my all-time favorite bonus feature, which is an inside look at the acting process with Ice Cube. Um, (laughs) Find it on YouTube if you can't find the DVD. It's like two minutes long, and it's magnificent. Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. Uh, Fantastic. This is Terrence Stamp's greatest performance. And I would have, as an 11-year-old, I would have obviously said Neil before Zod was his finest moment on film. Uh, The limey end-to-end is the best thing Terrence Stamp has ever done or will ever do. And it's right up there for Soderbergh, too. It's a beast of a movie. Uh, From Tim Burton, Sleepy Hollow. Great. Why don't we have 50 Tim Burton horror films? Why don't we have Tim Burton hammer movies out the asshole? Why do we have... Awful CGI nightmare fairy tale movies that nobody likes, including Tim Burton, instead of 50 (laughs) Sleepy Hollows that you can tell his heart and soul were in. Uh, Maybe the most atypical film for the within the rest of the director filmography. This year saw the release of David Lynch's Disney film, The Straight Story. I love that this is rated G. I just showed Toshi for his birthday. He's 17. Please don't arrest me. But I just showed him (laughs) Blue Velvet. And um, Blue Velvet changed his life perspective. He realizes that the world is terrifying and he's never leaving his house again. Um, So my work is done. Uh, And I mentioned to him that David Lynch made a G-rated Disney film in 1999, and he doesn't believe me. 
he, he can't accept that that's even possible. <laughs> Smart kid. Um, he just thinks you manufactured it out of whole cloth. Yeah. And the thing is, the straight story is just as wonderful as his craziest stuff and just as much him. I think it is 100% David Lynch and a great Richard Farnsworth performance. Um, From Martin Scorsese, Bringing Out the Dead. Uh, I love Bringing Out the Dead. And it is a yeah. uh, movie that I did not love when it came out. I have over time Ooh. really learned to love the um, drugged out rhythm of it. It is the rhythm yes. of a man who is breaking down because of lack of sleep and because of the wrong mix of chemicals in his bloodstream. And it is a movie that perfectly captures that feeling. I had to have about three years of horrifying insomnia insomnia before I truly understood how good bringing out the dead wow. is at making you feel like you're crazy. <laughs> um, from Michael Mann, the insider. Um, I'm not this film's biggest fan. There's a reason it's not in my Ooh. top five. I like this Ooh. film. I think it is a terrific look at the way uh, the sausage gets made in terms of uh, TV news at the time. I think it's a yep. very specific time and place movie. I don't know that this is a film that will resonate necessarily throughout uh, the decades. I don't think it is one of man's films that I would necessarily put at the top of his list, but it's a great Pacino performance. It's a great Bruce McGill performance. There's some terrific yes. work in it. Woody Allen's sweet and low down. I, I just want to hang out the dump and shoot rats with Samantha Morton. What's wrong with that? <laughs> huh? The aforementioned The Green Mile. I like The Green Mile. It's a brick of cheese. Uh, here is a, yeah. a giant brick of cheese. Here's my favorite Green Mile story. Uh, friendly with Frank Darabont, Frank wanted to show it to somebody and wanted to rent out a private screening room. But he didn't want to show it to this person alone because he was afraid that it would just lay there. So he asked four or five of us to come and sit directly behind Billy Wilder. So, Oh, God. We go to screen the Green Mile. Oh, no. And Billy Wilder's oh, no. sitting directly in front of us, and we're reacting to the film. And at the end of the movie, the lights come up, and Billy's handler goes to lift him and put him into his, his wheelchair. And Frank's standing there, and Billy Wilder says, Frank, uh, you have made a beautiful movie. It's a lovely film, but um, I am an old man, and it is so long, and I have to pee so much. <laughs> so we had to wait for about 10 minutes then for the rest of Billy's reaction. But that was that was his first takeaway, was it's so long. <laughs> so. Ang Lee's Ride with the Devil. Uh, great movie. I, I'm mystified that nobody ever saw it, but this was when Ang Lee could not get arrested. And uh, he was making movies right. like The Ice Storm and Ride with the Devil that should be better known and better loved than they are and yes. really have fascinating things to say about American culture. And yet we just miss this era. Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. Great. Great. Um, maybe one of my favorite Mike Lee films in terms of all of his craft coming to bear and really paying off in terms of the way he works with his actors, the way he builds his movies, the way he picks his subjects. This thing has a life that feels like it is spilling out of the edges of the frame, which is, I think, what Mike Lee is always trying to do. And it's never paid off. I, I think it is rarely paid off as well as it does in this film. Galaxy Quest. Uh, Galaxy Quest is one of the best Star Trek movies ever made, and it's also fall down funny. Uh, how can you argue with that? <laughs> you mentioned it briefly earlier, but uh, we should circle back to the talented Mr. Ripley. All hail the talented Mr. Ripley, which was my number six, probably, if I if I had to pick one. Um, almost made my list. I think this Matt Damon performance is incredible. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is incredible in this movie. Unbelievable. Jude Law is awesome awesome in this movie i think everybody is throwing heat in this thing but mostly anthony Mangella. boy did he understand why patricia highsmith's books are both the most pleasurable reads you'll ever have and you need to shower after you finish them uh he gets that combination <laughs> dead right and that's our lightning round thank you drew mcweeney Absolutely. i think uh, we may have covered may have covered more ground in that one than we have yet on the lightning round um guy who understands the meaning of the word lightning <laughs> <laughs> well done sir all right before we call it a night i want to let you plug uh tell us a bit about your two substack newsletters which i heartily and highly recommend uh thank you sir um yeah my first newsletter is formerly dangerous um 
Uh, I promise I'm reformed. I'm not hurting anybody now. I'm just writing about movies. Um, <laughs> and uh, it is new film reviews as well as uh, it's something that is now tied to the podcast I'm starting. Uh, every Monday I'm doing what's called a hip pocket review, which is just those movies that we carry around that are important to us, that we love to share with people that you don't care if somebody else loves it or not. They're, they, they're the movies that matter most to you, like With Nail and I or The Thin Man or... You know, movie movies that you adore that are part of who you are. So uh, that's also the name of my new podcast, which will be premiering sometime in September. Um, and then uh, the other newsletter is the last 80s newsletter you'll ever need. And I am reviewing in order every movie released in the United States chronologically. Uh, and I am uh, in 1981 now. Uh, in February 1981, starting to publish that in just a couple of weeks. Um, and it is an insane task, and I'm a crazy person for starting it. And uh, please, please support me. <laughs> I I love this newsletter. And we should mention, you know, that you can go listen there. This was sort of a spinoff of a, a podcast that you did for a while yes. um, with Scott Weinberg. Uh, called 80s all over, you know, and I love that podcast. I love this sub stack for the same reason that I've been so enjoying going back and rewatching old like Siskel and Ebert episodes. And really, honestly, kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast as well, which is this idea that great and bad movies never exist in a vacuum and that it's it's can be so instructive to know not only what was happening in the world when a movie came out, but what else was playing when a movie came out. Absolutely. Sort of what, what things were happening alongside each other. And I'm frequently shocked when I read the, the 80s newsletter by how many incredible sort of, you know, movies that we think of as just like the best movies of this decade coming out like all at the same time. This like the incredible choice of stuff there was to see if you went to the movies like over Christmas in December of 1980. Yeah. Um, I'm just fascinated by that. And and I think the, the rank, you realize that they program for a much wider range of audiences that it wasn't about oh, yeah. everything supposed to be a four quadrant. They, yeah, not everything was made for everybody. They made movies for specific audiences, and we've lost that. There is such a desire to everybody's supposed to love everything, and everybody's supposed to participate in everything, and that's just not the way pop culture works. I really miss that sense that you could go to the theater and see and have like Bronco Billy and Fame and uh, The Empire Strikes Back and One Trick Pony all playing it. That's wild, man. That's a really wild lineup of stuff to have sort of next to each other and on top of each other. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, again, like I say, I, I highly recommend subscribing. Thank you, sir. Uh, and Drew, uh, if people want to follow you on social media, they can do so at... Uh, I am Drew McWeeny on Twitter. I am Drew McWeeny on Letterboxd. And I got no other social media. So if you see somebody, it's a phony. Don't follow them. <laughs> phony, I say. Phony. All right, Drew... Thank you again for for coming on and, and talking with us and sharing with us your your love for this incredible year. Thank you, man. Of movies. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> thank you, Drew. And thank you for listening. It was a very good year.